You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. We are diving back into the Bitcoin Times Volume 3 today. So many great pieces in this one, and we've got a just a phenomenal one by none other than Jeff Booth, uh, author of The Price of Tomorrow. I highly recommend that book to anyone who has not read it. It is phenomenal. Um, his piece in the Bitcoin Times is titled The Greatest Game. We're going to be talking about paradigm shifts, why they are so hard to see, why capitalistic failure is such a critical component, and how the old system's imbalances compound on themselves to make it unable to compete with the new challenger. And obviously, in the context of this piece, our legacy system is the, the thing being disrupted is the fiat monetary system, the global monetary system and our paradigm uh, shifting challenger is of course bitcoin all right before we get into it a really quick thank you to our sponsors we have the bitbox hardware wallet this really is the simplest way to keep secure offline cold storage of your savings um highly recommend you get a hardware wallet bitbox is definitely the way to go uh, then we've got the Hexa mobile wallet for day-to-day -day use. Got multiple accounts, uh, seedless backup, and my favorite transaction, batching, so you can save on fees. And then lastly, the Bitcoin banking service and no trading fee exchange, Level.co. If you like paying fees, don't use these guys. Uh, they have no trading fees. So if you don't like fees, you know, maybe you should see if they're available in your state. You can check out all of these awesome products that our sponsors have at GuySwan.com. But with no more delay, we are now getting into part one. Hopefully, uh, I will be able to finish this up tomorrow, um, but uh, it will take a little bit. It will definitely take two parts to get through all of this. But let's get into this piece that gives us a lens on how to view the world while living through a monetary paradigm shift. And it's titled... The Greatest Game by Jeff Booth Quote You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Buckminster Fuller Breakthroughs that step change our lives for the better invariably come from something that most people couldn't see. Our belief of how the world should exist and operate is shaped from looking backwards, not forward. So it makes sense that new paradigms that change everything face resistance in our minds. Because most people don't see them, breaking through an existing paradigm needs to provide enough compelling value for users to disrupt an old paradigm. Apple's iPhone, for instance, didn't copy the market leader. 
Research in Motion's BlackBerry design of needing a keyboard or selling to businesses who required RIMS security. It created a digital interface when that wasn't, quote, needed and created an entirely new platform that changed the industry as a result. Along the way, the BlackBerry died, unable to compete with the value for users that was now increasingly exponentially on Apple's platform. That process describes, quote, creative destruction, a paradoxical term first coined by Joseph Schumpeter in 1942 to describe how capitalism works in a free market. Entrepreneurs innovate and create value for society, and that value gained by society also often destroys the former monopoly power. That process and its importance is at the center of how all modern economies have evolved and given rise to most of the benefits to society we take for granted today. New winners become so valuable that they disrupt existing market power or structures. It is all driven from a near-constant flow of innovative entrepreneurs with bold ideas and the capital backing them that go up against the status quo and are only successful if they create value for society. For the process to work, failure is critical, both for entrepreneurs and the capital in them whose business doesn't work, and for legacy businesses that get disrupted by them if their innovation brings better value to society. And while failure is hard, preventing failure is much worse. Why? Because by preventing failure, market incentives become warped, and in doing so, eventually put a small number of people, government or central banks, in charge of choosing who gets what instead of the free market. Unfortunately, preventing failure has been the policymaker's tool for the last 20 years, and it has enormous consequences. By socializing losses and preventing failure in our economies, central banks and governments have all but ensured that the existing monetary system of the world collapses and is replaced by something new. In other words, by preventing failure in economies in the short term, creative destruction has only moved now to the level of our international economic system. I believe with what is to come, Bitcoin has a higher than average probability of overcoming all barriers and becoming a global reserve currency. More importantly, I believe it gives humanity its best chance for a peaceful transition to the future. A world where the abundance gained from our technological progress is more widely distributed. It is not hyperbole to say that almost everything changes as a result of this innovation. A 10x strategy. Be a big fish in a small pond first. When creating new technology companies, a framework I use to understand if something has an ability to win is the 10x advantage, meaning that unless a new company, the challenger, can deliver a 10x advantage to the market, it has no chance of creating escape velocity and becoming a new category leader. While a 10x advantage does not guarantee the success of a challenger, it greatly enhances its probability. There are a number of reasons for this. 
For a company to create a new category, it has to first convince a market that its product or service is far superior to the one that it is trying to replace, i.e. that people need to change. If the challenger doesn't have a 10x type of advantage, it becomes difficult to even be, quote, found through the noise of an existing market. Harder still, it has to do this while battling two major forces. One, if successful, the existing monopoly will attempt to beat the innovation, either by changing their own offering or using their existing marketer to kill it. And two, with success comes many new entrants, copycats or slight innovations that enter the market to compete, confusing the market as to the benefits. For a challenger to continue to advance, then, it must continue to offer more advantage than the copycats while staying under the radar from the monopoly for long enough to gain enough scale or gain network effects before the monopoly takes notice. The best way to do this is not by competing on everything that a monopoly competes on, but instead picking a very small part of a market that goes relatively unnoticed by the monopoly and providing the 10x advantage to only that. Google, starting at only search as their first market when there was no money in providing search, as a startup versus all of its competitors at the time, provides a good example. First competing narrowly, only free search, against every other search website who was selling advertising at the time was something that was underappreciated by the monopolies. With the market individuals moving quickly to Google for all things search, it was easier to add functionality, because the users were already there, to compete with broader platforms like Microsoft. Therefore, winning a narrow part of the market first, a 10x advantage, created a path to do everything else. From Amazon's start in only books, to Tesla starting at the Roadster, if you examine the path of almost every new company who breaks through monopoly power, they follow a similar path. The reason this path goes unnoticed is that by the time the innovation and path are, quote, recognized by the broader community, it is too late. It has successfully disrupted the monopoly, and people forget what it looked like in the beginning. This is a useful analogy when looking at Bitcoin's evolution from where it was when Satoshi launched the Genesis block to where Bitcoin might go in the future. By designing Bitcoin as the first, quote, decentralized, non-trust-based system and designing a fixed scarcity of 21 million Bitcoins into the protocol, Bitcoin removed the need for a trusted intermediary and at the same time created digital scarcity. Bitcoin's first use case could then be viewed as more of a store of value than a currency, since for it to compete as a currency, it would need to be able to be widely used in society. In other words, Bitcoin's narrow 10x advantage could be compared to gold first, rather than as a competitor to money. A note. It is rather fascinating to watch human psychology as Bitcoin emerges, because while dismissing Bitcoin outright as a store of value, many of these same market participants faithfully believe in the absolute value of a yellow-colored rock or a piece of paper with faces and names on it that they know is being actively manipulated. I will attempt to use this framework to describe why I believe Bitcoin, the challenger, is poised over time 
to replace the existing economic system, the monopoly. Before I do though, it is worth exploring why an innovation like Bitcoin is required in the first place. Technology has changed the rules. Exponentially advancing technological gains bring efficiency. That efficiency is deflationary, moving exponentially and into all industries, which means prices should be falling on almost everything. The reason prices are not falling is that advancing technological progress is incompatible with the existing monetary system, which requires inflation to remain viable. That existing system is being manipulated so it appears viable and pushes prices up as a result, which sets up a conflict to be resolved at a system level. One, exponentially increasing efficiency driven by technological progress requires a currency that allows for deflation, the challenger. And two, the existing fiat monetary system, the monopoly, requires inflation, and consequently, it needs manipulation to remain viable. The reason that many people don't see it or truly understand its implications is similar to any breakthrough in technology. They are trapped with an existing framework, the monopoly, and they use that framework to measure all interactions. Let's explore what happens to policy as the two forces of an inflationary monetary policy competing against exponentially advancing technology come together. Remember, they are opposing forces. Entrepreneurs using technology are trying to deliver more value for less, whilst inflation is moving in the opposite direction. Also, note that I have attempted to look at the structural change through a system lens rather than a people lens. Although any system has bad actors, the predominant force driving decisions are not because of willful neglect or bad intent, but instead to protect the status quo and the monopoly, because it is very hard to imagine what the future could look like without it. In other words, changing actors in the system would produce more of the same results and very little real change. Worse still, when much of society believes that changing actors can fix the system, society becomes more divided while only serving to perpetuate the status quo. Additionally, for those hoping that a change to Bitcoin or the challenger system happens all at once, be careful what you wish for. While the existing system is producing profoundly negative effects, it is important to remember that all of our other institutions currently sit on top of the existing system, the monopoly, and a sudden change would spell disaster for your way of life. In my opinion, the best way for people to understand how important Bitcoin is for the future is to first understand how the existing system, and not people, amplifies insecurity and how a change to a different monetary policy would produce infinitely better results. So let's first consider what the sequence of events would look like from the existing fiat system, the monopoly. 1. Must create inflation. 
Without it, deflation takes hold and wipes out credit. And because the system is based on credit, wealth is destroyed. The chance for policy change that could have prevented a complete reset to the existing fiat system was about 20 years ago and would have required an understanding of how fast technology was moving and what it meant for the inflationary fiat monetary system. Instead, policymakers made the same mistake most people do when looking at technology. They underestimated its exponential impact. This quote by Nobel laureate economist Paul Krugman in 1998 sums up the thinking at the time. Quote, by 2005 or so, it will become clear that the Internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. So, instead of allowing nature to take its course, 2. Interest rates were manipulated lower to increase growth, and almost every year taken lower again as predictions of growth came up short against the reality of technological progress on the market. Although the chart below references the United States, this was a global phenomenon. And there's a chart here of the 10-year yield uh, uh, percentage, uh, the actual versus the CBO projection. So all the different CBO, the Congressional Budget Office projections, overlaid on the actual 10-year yield. And I encourage you to go, I'm not going to try to describe it other than to say, you should go look at it at the article, which I will link in the show notes, just so you can see how hilariously wrong every single one of their projections has been from 2010 to today. The lower rates and additional debt created produced limited growth, which is to say deflation, prices going down, would have taken hold without it and made the debt unrepayable causing a larger deflationary depression than would have happened in step one. Now trapped, though, the system required ever lower rates, and the lower rates caused debt binges, misallocated capital, and asset bubbles. Designing more fragility in the system as the severity of the reset for society only grew. Global debt rose to over $250 trillion in 2019, with $185 trillion of that new, quote, stimulus coming over the last 20 years. A note, because technology is continuing to advance exponentially, it will take exponentially more debt and easing to keep the existing system intact. It is impossible to see how a system operates by only looking at its individual elements, so politicians, policymakers, citizens, and businesses were caught along for the ride. For example, believing that housing and education expenses always go up without asking whether they would have gone up without $185 trillion of additional stimulus leads logically to number three. Three, a breaking of the rules of capitalism and distortion of free markets when it is realized that the debt cannot be repaid. A tweet by Sats Rubini. Guess they changed their mind. Hat tip at Jeff Booth. Excerpt. September 4th, 2007. Quote. It is not the responsibility of the Federal Reserve, nor would it be appropriate, to protect lenders and investors from the consequences of their financial decisions. 
Ben Bernanke, interview with CNBC. It is not debt itself that acts to undermine capitalism and the free market. It is the act of stabilizing an economy through socializing the losses when faced with a collapse that undermines the free market and capitalism's own institutional framework. Preventing creative destruction, therefore, codifies bad behavior into capitalism itself, since market participants now realize that the system will always bail them out for fear of a catastrophic collapse, which is exactly what would have happened, and would happen today, without bailouts. Goodbye to free markets. From the policymakers' perspective, the monopoly, at this point in the cycle, it would be hard to allow the entire economic system to collapse, so the proverbial can is always kicked down the road without full consideration of the unintended consequences. This predictably leads to unnatural inequality, social unrest, and a loss of faith in, quote, the system, the monopoly. This breakdown phase, which can last longer than people realize, is analogous to a business fighting a structural change and, because of that structural change, having a shorter runway to make the change, which causes chaos throughout the business as it deals with urgent issues and no way of fixing the underlying structure. It should also be reinforced that by the existing fiat system, the monopoly here, I'm not referring to any one country, but the overall fiat monetary system. This is important because it will be easy to be fooled in the shorter term by only looking at individual elements of the system. In this case, the individual element being a country currency within the overall framework. As each government acting in its own national interests plays its own game, there could be periods of calm, chaos, uprisings, and war as the overall system swings violently back and forth and accelerates its breakdown. The breakdown phase has a couple of important aspects for how we should view the likely response by the system, the monopoly, versus the challenger, Bitcoin. The breakdown phase. A. Because the system as it is designed today creates unnatural inequality, social unrest, and loss of faith, a rise in the merits of socialism and centrally planned economies will predictably emerge and become more popular with citizens. They will gladly transfer control to more government and policymakers to fix the problem. Ironically, they will do so without the knowledge that the problem was created by the policymakers on both sides of the political aisle in the first place, all by ignoring free markets. B. The new policymakers will change the rules, effectively transferring the independence of the Fed and other central banks to treasury and politicians, to allow for a redistribution of wealth in an attempt to save the system. This will first come in the way of modern monetary theory, helicopter drops of money, and other fiscal programs designed to get newly printed money to citizens and businesses in an attempt to avoid unrest and to spur inflation. Most people won't realize that inflation actually means their real wages and the value of money going down and will gladly accept the, quote, free money. C. As this happens, and prices are continually manipulated higher through printing money and artificially low interest rates, 
businesses will be forced to remove labor faster with technology to remain competitive. If they do not, they risk becoming permanent wards of the state, zombie companies that require money from the government to function. Removal of labor with technology naturally accelerates the cycle of government intervention and manipulation of currencies to, quote, save jobs. Because inflation is equal to, quote, real wages going down, it can work to delay the job loss process by paying less to workers. In other words, the real labor component of work falls by making the labor component lower as a percentage of the work. Few will realize this sleight of hand and that inflation is a tax on those most unable to pay. So the cycle outlined in B will accelerate. D. Along this path, we can expect the existing system, the monopoly, to attempt the introduction of their own digital currencies, allowing for more control over wealth distribution in an attempt to, quote, fix a problem the existing system cannot. We can also expect that different currency regimes will compete with each other to make their currency most widely used. A couple of examples why this becomes a requirement for the existing system. 1. Central banks cannot take their interest rates too far negative without people pulling their money from banks, which subsequently causes bank runs and the system to unwind. With a digital currency, negative interest rates could be applied immediately without those consequences, picking your pocket with a keystroke. 2. For central banks wanting to get newly printed money into people's hands today, it needs to go through a banker intermediary who determines creditworthiness. Because a bank is a private enterprise with shareholders and needs to remain profitable, a bank will not lend money unless they believe that a business or individual can pay back the loan with interest, which requires an expectation of strong future earnings, i.e. economic growth. A digital currency could be transferred by the central bank or treasury into the hands of citizens without this transfer mechanism of a bank. From the perspective of the system, the monopoly, these new digital currencies could slow Bitcoin, the challenger, by compelling people to use the monopoly currency to gain the benefit and interact with the rest of the economy. As they bring in their own digital currencies, though, they bring much more attention, network effects, and accelerated innovation to the challenger, because more of the public becomes aware of the manipulation and what it means to them. Additionally, these digital currencies put central banks and the treasuries in direct competition with the private banking sector, who up until now have been the largest beneficiaries of the monopoly system. E. Along this path, we can also expect certain governments to make it more difficult for Bitcoin or other challengers to compete by closing on-ramps and off-ramps or making their own digital currencies appear more attractive. While the existing monopoly may not provide the same security as a store of value, the challenger's first 10x advantage, it does currently provide a far simpler way to transact with the greater economy. Certain governments will use that advantage to slow or stop the challenger's advance into a wider medium of exchange. Fortunately, by doing so, it also creates an incentive for other governments, economies, and businesses to accept Bitcoin, the challenger, 
either as a currency itself or as a unit of account backing their own currency. While these actions are likely to have short-term implications on Bitcoin, they likely also serve to reinforce the challenger's position. Many people will not take the time to understand that every step along this path to digital currencies, they will have slowly, at first, and then suddenly, transferred complete control of their monetary affairs to government institutions and away from the free market, and in doing so, transferred their natural rights to a ruling class who determines who gets what. Furthermore, since a small number of people in government could never match the efficiency of a free market and government tax revenues to pay for the services that its citizens demand come as a result of a vibrant economy, living standards must decline. What can be given away so freely can just as easily be taken. It's along this path that you had better hope for benevolent dictators because you have given up your freedom. Hopefully, you will see by now that just like a company trying to protect itself from being destroyed by a new competitor, the actions and reactions of central banks and policymakers to protect the system that they know are quite predictable. That the existing system that has people trying harder to keep up and save enough money, while the same system is designed to inflate those savings away, is a feature of the system, not a bug. It has much of the population trading their most valuable asset, their time, for jobs with declining real pay, and not able to step off the wheel of insanity for fear of falling into the abyss. What the system, the monopoly, cannot see is that by protecting itself, it is the harbinger of the real crisis. As the nature of society itself is torn apart, as each person and family is forced down a path of destructive self-interest and survival. All right, so we're about halfway through this thing, and the next part of uh, this piece is basically taking a look at the entire framing of this from the Bitcoin perspective, from the perspective of the challenger. Um, and, uh, and so it'll be a great place to start with uh, tomorrow's episode, but I want to get in a little bit of Guy's take before we actually move on from here. Um, but right now I need a quick break. I'm going to get some water and uh, stretch my legs for a little bit. Uh, we will hit our sponsor real fast, and then we will jump back into Guy's take on the greatest game by Jeff Booth. All right, guys, I hope you're ready for this because we are literally on the verge of $30,000 per Bitcoin. I told you that this can go from a few thousand dollars to many thousands of dollars really fast if you have an investment in this and that this can be really scary. Um, that is why you must, if you have more than a few bucks in Bitcoin, you need to get a simple quick to set up, easy to use hardware wallet. It is the standard in Bitcoin savings security and the Bitbox O2 is where it's at. The Bitbox is super secure. It is built by Bitcoin devs. It is open source. It is Swiss made. They are 100% focused on security and key storage without trying to do a hundred other things. Their UI is very user-friendly and damn it, it just looks good. 
go to guyswan.com slash bitbox. If you don't have a good hardware wallet yet and get your Bitcoin keys secured before this thing explodes even higher, guyswan.com slash bitbox. All right, so let's go back through part one of this before we finish this one out in tomorrow's episode. Um, well, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I've still got some recording to do tonight. I'll be out of town uh, for the next two days. So hopefully, I think I'll have everything ready for some episodes so that you guys uh, have something for the rest of the week um, or uh, over New Year's, even though I will not be available. Um, but uh, the uh, digging into this piece, though, it's really easy, or at least it's much easier to see a disrupting technology or uh, kind of a disrupted service or product in an industry that moves very quickly because you're used to seeing the disruptions in the past. You know, those disruptions happen on five, ten-year time frames, and you can look back and see the previous examples of it. But the, the more base that the technology becomes, the more foundational the technology is, it becomes much more difficult to actually understand whether or not it is a disruption and to see its actual value. So um, the printing press was a great example. The internet was a great example, is to not see... It's such a found, foundational technology that it's very hard to see the second, third, and fourth layer effects that come from having a fundamental change at such a base layer, you know, it would seem unimportant that, you know, you can type something into a, a black computer screen command line interface and then have it show up somewhere else. It's like, okay, well, we kind of can do that already. But the nature of it being a packet of how it's oriented, what its limitations are, and foundationally competing on something something very narrow to begin with, which I will get into in just a second, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, um, is that if you change something that low in the totem pole, everything above it must change. And the further you get away from it, the greater the degree of difference actually becomes. So, you know, if, if you're changing something at the roots of the tree, you know, it might change the trunk a little bit, but you have no idea what the leaves are going to look like. You know, like like the, the things at the very periphery might change so drastically as to be uh, unrecognizable. And that's what I think the cultural and like kind of human shift that happens when you change something at the monetary layer, um, which we've talked about in a couple of recent episodes. And actually, there's a great piece by Giacomo Zucco that is coming very, very soon. Um, and uh, I want to get into that, too. But just uh, what was it? Tuesdays? Yeah, yesterday's yesterday's episode was uh, John Vallis's bullish on Bitcoiners talking about the personal change that happens. Is that cultural? Uh, the, the culture is downstream from the environment. Like humans are a response, or we, we adapt to the environment that we are in. So the incentives, the payoffs, the um, the conflicts and problems with cooperating or with working with or against our environment are critical to setting up incentives for what type of people we become. And there's no escaping this either. You know, this is a, this is a process of life. Um, if we were not a product of our environments, then we would 
we would be static regardless of what environment we were in and therefore we would not survive like it it's necessary to survival that we are uh uh whatever our environment enables us to be that it incentivizes us and that we change accordingly and that's why if you change something like at the foundation of society like money it can change almost everything about how we organize and what we think of as common expected behavior, consumerism, uh, excessive debts, um, uh, how we value, um, uh, you know, cheap thrills or drugs or something today versus a long-term, um, a long-term family or a long-term goal. And how it is that like society like today might be so focused on building cheap plastic shit that will last for two years um, and how polar opposite that is from a society 2,000 years ago that spent three generations, four generations building a temple or a wall. Like that, that you could have a project that, that someone would start knowing that they would die before the project was done that you could have such an incredibly long-term time horizon. Uh, while today, like the idea of starting a project that's five years out is just kind of like, ugh. Like even massive institutions and like the government doesn't even do that. The government doesn't do anything that it can't do in the next four years before the next regime comes in. And uh, even corporations, you know, a 10-year investment, something that doesn't pay off for 10 or 20 years is incredibly rare and probably seen as risky and stupid for the most part outside of you know a handful of necessarily long-term investments that just don't have an alternative all of these things can fundamentally change our incentives and our environment are so critical in actually establishing our mindset about these things and that is kind of part of the framing for why we fail to see disruption because of how much our current environment, how much the default tells us or in, informs us on how to think about the world and how to think about change as we are experiencing it. And there's a quote right, uh, right towards the beginning of this, uh, quote, the reason that many people don't see it or truly understand its implications is similar to any breakthrough in technology. They are trapped with an existing framework, the monopoly, and they use that framework to measure all interactions, end quote. So this is talking about Bitcoin and talking about like disruptive technologies. This is the Overton window idea that our environment that we grow up in, that we understand as the one that, is, that works or is the default that we establish our very framework for how we think of the world and what does or does not work through the lens of the system that we grew up in. So it's necessarily, necessarily, we cannot make sense of a paradigm-shifting technology. And it's almost invariably that we don't even understand the paradigm was shifting until we get on the other side of it understand and adopt the replacement, and then look back. If you look at all of history, everybody who lived through revolutions and renaissance and uh, uh, massive shifts and the collapse of empires, almost invariably they didn't even know it was happening. 
Like, this is a very common thread throughout history that no one was aware until 50 years after it occurred, and then they looked back and they were like, holy shit, everything changed, and it just we just weren't paying attention. And it's because we weigh the importance of the change or the degree of change that we are going through through the old lens, and therefore we necessarily can't see the change according to the new lens. So because of that, we necessarily can't make sense of a shift in our paradigm unless we are already noticing cracks in the current Overton window. And that's why I think kind of explicitly it's, it's always been uh, cypherpunks and libertarians who are so quick to leap into Bitcoin. I mean, really, the cypherpunk philosophy is what birthed Bitcoin because they were already kind of seeing the new paradigm. They were looking at history from a different perspective. But they, both of these groups in particular um, uh, saw a value proposition that others didn't even understand would be valuable. In fact, just the opposite to so many people that I had told about Bitcoin for so many years that it is a non-state entity, that there is no government behind it. I would be promoting this as if this was the most important and most incredible element about Bitcoin. But to them, it was literally evidence that it wasn't worth anything. It was like, oh God, how could you want something or a money that wasn't backed by government? Like government is money. Like these things were equal to them in their mind. And so it's not until NGU technology, you know, number go up, uh, that, that people even begin to realize that uh, or, or start, start to step into a new place and essentially look around at what actually is, that you even begin to see government-manipulated currency might actually be a really terrible idea. That, holy shit, this is actually a horrible tool for producing a productive and healthy economy. But you have to step outside of the lens that you're looking at the world through first. But while looking through the old lens, there's no way there, there's no way to connect the cause and effect because it's almost necessarily a change in conditions that are outside of what is important in the current framework. And an example of just like kind of how my perspective has changed over so many years of uh, like kind of digging into this, into the Austrian theory of economics and uh, libertarianism and, you know, kind of finding this rabbit hole that led me to Bitcoin and then got me stuck here. Um, was uh, looking, just looking at history through the lens of monetary changes, of systemic changes in how we organized and uh, uh, cooperated in society, whether or not it was like, like the, the technologies that forced us to behave or to interact in different ways and how that actually changed our political systems rather than vice versa. So... Uh, kind of the typical lens is to like look at who the presidents were, look at what the political system was, and uh, you know trace that back through history, and you can see all these big changes. And it's kind of like a, well, we don't really know why this change happened, but after about eighty years, this happened, and here was this big shift, and this was the new society. But then if you take back, take take it back and look at look at it through a lens of like monetary systems of uh, the the technology of spreading information of the technologies of violence, of the bow and arrow, the gun, um, uh, gunpowder, of uh, the printing press, of sound money, of the gold standard, 
suddenly you see all of these foundational things that would shift just before all of these massive shifts in the political environments. And you realize that the political systems are actually downwind from the technology and the spread of information and all of these more basic things of just how we interact and how we spread information. And suddenly the more the core of, uh, of, of what's going on is actually how the system operates. And then you realize the, the consequences and the changing of that is irrespective of the actors, that it doesn't matter who's in it, the incentives will still align to essentially create different flavors of the same result. Um, and, and that's something that Jeff Booth actually brings up in this piece is that, uh, in fact, I got a quote here, one second. Um, quote, in other words, changing actors in the system would produce more of the same results and very little real change. Worse still, when much of society believes that actors, that changing actors can fix the system, society becomes more divided while only serving to perpetuate the status quo. This could not better explain what the hell is going on today. Um, is that we are in this huge fight over changing, trying to change who is in charge of a broken system. There is no fixing our monetary system. Just, just look at, just look at the, the COVID bill, the COVID relief bill, quote unquote. Is the whole point of this is supposed to be to get help to the people that they've forced into lockdown, that have lost their jobs, that have lost their businesses, that have been forced to, that it has been made illegal to make an income and to run your business, um, is to help those people out. You could do that with half a page very, very easily. But instead, in a matter of hours, Congress is supposed to vote on a 5,600-page monstrosity of subsidies, uh, war funding, uh, gender programs in Pakistan, of just the most absurd, of copyright law, of ridiculous copyright law expansion. It is a perfect petri dish of how unbelievably corrupt and what staggering bullshit is consequence, is the consequence of how the system actually operates. And there is no way around it. There is no way to, like, like Trump, you know, gave this great speech about, oh, it's all this stupid shit in the bill. And he's like, you should remove a little bit of it and, you know, up it to $2,000 rather than a $600 check. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to push through like a 5,000 page bill, but it's not going to change anything. There's still 4,999 pages of corrupt subsidy, special interest lobbying bullshit attached to the one page that is actually dedicated to COVID relief. And that's just the political system. That's just how lobbying and getting the special interest and actually getting bills through Congress works. And if you put a whole bunch of new people in it, it doesn't change. So instead, ineffective team blue just believes that ineffective team red is what's causing all of their problems and vice versa. And so the divide, as things begin to completely break down and things get worse and worse and the hamster wheel gets spinning faster and faster and we're all perpetually stuck in this this bullshit that doesn't ever get better. It only ever gets worse. It just continues to accelerate into the broken, uh, inoperable stage. 
is that the division between the two ineffective nonsense solutions um, or non-solutions uh, become more and more aggressive with each other because neither one is able to do anything meaningfully to stop the system from barreling into the cliff. But both sides are 100% certain that they are the heroes and the other team is just all the evil people who are causing this thing to go off the rails. When in reality, there really never were rails. We were just always headed straight towards the cliff. So essentially, as all of this continues to unravel, um, the inequality go grows, uh, the po political unrest grows, uh, the division grows, the hate grows, the violence grows. Um, and uh, because nobody can actually see, they're looking through a lens that tells them nothing about the situation. They're looking through a lens that can only perpetuate the problem, because the problem is the lens. The problem is not what we're doing within the lens. It, it's, not, it's not that we're not uh, directing the framework in the right uh, place. It's that the framework itself doesn't work. It's just that it worked for such a long time because the, the, uh, the imbalance was subtle. The imbalance was hard to see, and it took a very, very long time for it to go in the wrong direction before we realized there was no turning back. There was no actual fixing the imbalance that it could only accelerate. And now it's so exponentially bad that there's, I mean, there never really was. I mean, Jeff Booth says that we could have corrected it 20 years ago um, uh, with, you know, massive political will and the understanding of it. And obviously we didn't. I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, I, I kind of think the 1971 removal of the gold standard was kind of inevitable because of, well, just the nature of uh, a violent monopoly of uh, any sort of centralized monetary system. I don't see how it cannot lead to the corruption of it because the, the, uh, the incentive to abuse it is too great. So there is no way that it doesn't eventually turn into abuse until it essentially dies because a small amount of abuse will be rewarded and, um, and it will lead to a benefit to the malicious actor. So if there's an honest actor and then there is a malicious actor and the malicious actor actually abuses uh, the monetary system because, you know, it's under centralized control, uh, well, then the malicious actor has uh, a massive advantage over the honest actor because the honest actor doesn't have the funds. They don't have the capital to actually allocate and a, a small abuse of the monetary system leads to staggering additional wealth to fight your competitor without actually having any of the cost because a small imbalance is incredibly hard to see and people don't understand it and it's very easy to centrally cover it up but the thing is it compounds on itself so the only way to then beat the next malicious actor that comes in and realizes oh well we can now it's normal to just abuse it a little bit I'm going to try to abuse, abuse it a little bit more and then you have to accelerate and I think that's kind of just the nature of centralized systems and even though there's so much about the fiat monetary system uh, that is kind of unique to fiat and to the technological environment and the digital environment that we are in today, um, I still think it's just kind of uh, an inevitability. Maybe it's just a degree of the speed with which we find that end of, uh, uh, you know, centralized control. But this is where, uh, and Jeff Booth gets into this um, uh, really well in the article, which maybe I'm just not remembering in The Price of Tomorrow, but I feel like he didn't hit this topic much in his book. 
um, which uh, has a lot of these same ideas, by the way. Highly, highly recommend the book. It's really, really good. Um, but I feel like he didn't talk so much. Um, he stressed a lot the point that the technological deflation is incompatible or it's a force that's working so hard against the inflationary um, aspects of our monetary system that they essentially it essentially becomes unsustainable. But he didn't talk a lot a whole a whole lot about free markets, about the nature of actually allowing competition to work out the imbalances and a centrally controlled monetary system necessarily prevents that from being able to actually take its natural course. And I could just be remembering incorrectly. Um, it's been a little while since I listened to the book, um, but uh, uh, he hits this really, really well in this article talking about uh, another one of the quotes is that, quote, preventing creative destruction, therefore, codifies bad behavior into capitalism itself, since market participants now realize that the system will always bail them out for fear of a catastrophic collapse, which is exactly what would have happened and would happen today without bailouts, end quote. This is where it is so hard to get people to understand. We are not in a free market. Free markets require free market incentives. That means that if you succeed in business, you succeed. If you produce value and produce efficiently, you are rewarded. If you fail, if you run an imbalance, if you run too much debt, go out of business. You go out of business. If bad practices, if dishonest practices, if irresponsible behavior are not weeded out of the market, then there is no way to have a balanced, healthy free market. It is a system of profit and loss. If you just use the political system to cover up all the losses, all you do is reward the irresponsible, the dishonest, and the unproductive at the cost of the honest, the productive, and the responsible. You're socializing the losses. You're forcing the people who did make a profit, who did produce a worthwhile, valuable business and trade with other people, to fill in the gap for the people who destroyed funds, who destroyed capital, and who were dishonest in how they did business. That is not a free market. That is a government, that is a political market. A real market, a free market, is give and take. It's about the ability to keep a reward for when you succeed and to pay the cost and take the risk for when you fail. If you don't have skin in the game, if you don't take the risk, then it's not real market incentives. You can't, like, half it. Like, it's like saying that, oh, we'll have, uh, you know, great prices and it'll be a great market if uh, all the businesses are allowed to operate however they want but we'll just blindfold all the customers and it'll be fine. So they won't know what they're buying and they won't know what the price, but it's only like a little bit of intervention. So everything will work out. Everything will still be balanced exactly the same way. Well, no, if the customer doesn't shop, then nothing, none of the incentives to push prices low and to care about the quality of the product are there. And this is the same thing, except not having to pay any of the cost of being wrong of essentially being able to commit fraud or be a complete incompetent fool when it comes to some productive enterprise or just some banking system or financial service 
and get bailed out because, specifically because you sucked at what you did. Because political expediency will bail you out. So as his quote says, is preventing creative destruction, destruction, not allowing the challenger, the newcomer, the environment to actually replace in a natural way the old outdated systems, to subsidize newspapers when everybody's getting their information off, off the internet, um, to uh, subsidize phone companies when everybody's moving to broadband, to bail out uh, fraudulent banks and trillions of dollars in imbalanced liabilities based on bad business practices. These things codify awful, unproductive, destructive behavior into the economic framework. And every single time we go through another bubble, we go through another crash and get bailed out again, it makes it worse and worse and worse. And the necessity, the seeming uh, obvious need for the government to come in to fix it even gets uh, associated with it. Is it like, oh, there's no other way to do it. All we can do, the only thing is to bail out everybody who continues to fail over and over and over again. The idea that anybody should be able to get a bailout twice within 10 years is absolutely insane. I mean, honestly, there should be, the idea of a bailout in general is insane. But nonetheless, if you have to bail out an entire industry or all of the major companies in an industry multiple times a decade, you just got to let that thing die, man. You, you just got to, it's just got to go. It's too bloated. It's, you know, bogged down. It's grown to its max size. And now it's so imbalanced that there's actually no fixing it because it requires, you know, some fundamental change, some structural change. But now there's so much, you know, it's like, it's like in software, there's so much technical debt. Um, there's so, so, many ma so much maintenance on the kind of outskirts of this thing that we have to hire hundreds of thousands of people just to keep the limbs in check and there's absolutely no time and no energy and no resources available to actually look at the trunk of the tree and see what's really wrong here um and and that's kind of that's kind of what this is on the government level on the monetary level you know we're talking about systems here uh, again a great example of why it is so impossible to see how big this change is is that we're talking about something that moves over hundreds, uh, hundreds of even thousands of years, like huge monetary shifts like this in tandem, like hand in hand with massive informational and technological shifts. You know, this is still the shift of the Internet, right? Like we are in a paradigm shift and witnessing another paradigm shift within it. Like we haven't even come close to the Internet Um really changing everything like, like we might be 50 years from really seeing what the world looks like on the other side of the internet revolution and bitcoin is a part of that bitcoin is like a whole it's a it's a whole nother layer of disruption of this same sort of communication system but it's one that's far more basic in society it's far more foundational money is is the tool of the economy it is how an economy is born and an economy trade is how society is born this is the this is the basis of humanity as a social creature like as a civilization the payoffs 
the incentives and the characteristics around money, trade, and violence are the foundation of what makes a civilization look like civilization A or civilization B. It will produce all those three things are absolutely core, and the internet and Bitcoin change the incentive structure and the, the reward for all three. It makes perfect sense that no one can see just how big of a deal this is, or that it is so incredibly hard to see just how great of a shift this will be in society. And, you know, Booth actually puts a really interesting quote in this, too, um, talking about the people, for those hoping that Bitcoin will change all at once, like this will have this huge hyper-Bitcoinization that will happen like a year. Um, he said, be careful what you wish for. Uh, says, yes, the current system, the existing system produces profoundly negative effects, but all of our institutions, everything that we think of as our standard of living, as the companies that we use as the reason we have a bank account and can make payments and can actually trade, even though they, the tree itself is poisoned, all of those things are hanging off the branches and they will collapse if we don't have something that we can actually move into, something that's technologically ready, that has the platform and the infrastructure to actually migrate to. And that's why this thing has to happen naturally because it's not merely that we change the money we have to rebuild the entire financial system. This won't happen in a year. This will take a decade, at least, still. Um, luckily, I think we can actually build, because of the technology, because of the fact that we're moving into the digital space at, you know, like barreling on a train at a million miles an hour, it seems like. Uh, I actually think we can reform this thing in a really massive way much much quicker and it will only get quicker as time progresses and additionally as this as the capital flows into bitcoin which its 10x advantage right now is its store of value um and i think that is still going to explode uh upward and, and i love that idea that he hits on is that like uh you know you compete in some narrow space amazon just sold books google just did search. Bitcoin just worried about store of value and its monetary properties. And you can sneak in. Like, uh, you know, the internet in general was just sending messages. It was basically email. But then you lay a groundwork. You get a foundation in that niche of uh, that one thing that it can do better than uh, all alternatives to it or to the, uh, to the incumbent, to the monopoly that was already established. And it's, it's not apparent to them from, you know, their current lens that they can even see that, you know, this new system, that this new challenger is actually even competing with them because it only does this one little thing. But it turns out this new thing is a platform that can be expanded to almost anything, you know, the internet being such a great example. How many industries did the internet disrupt that just had no idea that it was coming? But now when it comes to Bitcoin, uh, we are fully in the breakdown phase, uh, in, in the transition of this. And I think Bitcoin is coming into its own as a store of value. Um, and, uh, I think that's going to hit so many markets blindsided, um, 
and the network effects of monetary assets, of the value feedback loop, just that is going to blow people's minds away. They are going to greatly underestimate just how big and broad this paradigm shift is. And they're going to think, oh, it's just going to reach, uh, you know, some uh, part uh, or some degree of adoption and then it will flatten out. And, and they're not seeing, they're not looking at the really fundamental piece of this. They're not looking at the economic core and that these things are not compatible together. The, the idea of fiat money and Bitcoin uh, and decentralized sound money literally can't exist together. One has to beat the other. Either Bitcoin uh, gets co-opted and destroyed or, you know, can't secure sound money in the face of large violent institutions, or they lose their monopoly over money, or the fiat system dies. And as Jeff Booth brings out of this in this piece is that since we are in the breakdown phase, that this is analogous to, uh, quote, a business fighting a structural change and because of that structural change, having a shorter runway to make the change so that it causes chaos throughout the business as it deals with all of these urgent issues and has no way of actually fixing the underlying structure. So essentially, the further we get into the breakdown stage, the, the further we get into the collapse of the fiat system, the, the fiat system is going to have a million things to deal with, always. Um, and, uh, and it's dealing with its own lack of trust, like the fact that everybody is um, growing, has growing distrust and then uh, is also far more incentivized to actually try to get control and take advantage of the system so you get infighting within the government. And I don't mean just red and blue. I mean the fights that we don't see. And on top of that, the political unrest, the inequality, the growing, uh, you know, the riots and, and all of these things is basically the standard of living breaks down because uh, we're having to accelerate the band-aids. Um, so, you know, it's like getting a thousand cuts and some small gunshot wounds and nicks and stuff. And you're constantly just having to bandage all of these tiny little things all over you. And, you know, the wind is blowing. You're in a storm. Like, there's just a million things to deal with. And all the while, uh, you know, you have cancer. Like, just there's just something fundamental that you just don't even have time to stop and think about because... Everything is focused on just keeping the normal operation from crumbling. And I honestly think that's where, where Bitcoin is going to shine, is that Bitcoin has not worried, you know, like, we're not trying to do all of it right now. Like, Bitcoin itself, it's like TCPIP. Just do that one thing. Just get the messages in order and get that right and let it grow from there. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of like the evolutionary design of this thing is that you get a bedrock, you get a protocol to do just one thing and do that one thing well, then you can build almost anything on top of it and you let it play out naturally. And while they have a million things to worry about and their problems only continue to grow and accelerate as they're trying to just continue to band-aid this, you know, sandcastle together as it's falling. Bitcoin is maturing as an incorruptible monetary policy, as, as a place to put value that cannot be cheated by anyone. And from that base, simple protocol, the protocol that just does that one job, 
of validating and securing the ownership and the value of the network, we can build literally anything on top of it and we can replace the entire financial system. It just takes time. But I've ranted, I've ranted long enough today. Um, there's still actually a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to, but uh, I kind of went on a tangent there. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and close this out. Uh, I'll try to hit it back on uh, part two of Jeff Booth's The Greatest Game. Again, this is part of the Bitcoin Times Volume 3. Uh, just some amazing works in this, and we've still got so much more to cover. So don't forget to subscribe. Uh, uh, much love to our wonderful sponsors, the Hexa Mobile Wallet. Uh, the BitBox hardware wallet for your cold storage, and Level.co for your Bitcoin mobile banking services. You can check all of them out at GuySwan.com right there on the front page. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you tomorrow. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.